some of you may know, my name is Louis Menjavar. I'm the young adults pastor here. I'm also part of the teaching team. And uh, I'm jumping in on this series of Radical Commitment. Uh, I'll be uh, sharing this weekend. Um, those of us who have signed up for the e-newsletter, um, which by the way, if you haven't, you're more than welcome to. It's, it's kind of how we uh, get information out during the week. We were made aware of the fact that Pastor Terry, uh, you know, he had an acute uh, case of appendicitis. And uh, Sunday night, he was admitted to the hospital and um, spent the week there and was released on Friday. But he is, uh, we're very happy to say he's in very good spirits. He's doing well. This was uh, <laughs> the day he, he was released. And, um, you know, he's recovering. He's uh, doing very well. He was strongly advised, however, as good as he's doing, um, he's strongly advised to stay home this weekend. And, um, you know, for those of us who may know him a little bit, he, he, that's, that's a difficult challenge <laughs> to request of him. But, uh, you know, he's doing great. We, we got to visit him this week, and uh, it, was just, it was just great to see him. I mean, he, he, he felt he, he, everyone in the hall knew him. Uh, on the floor he was at, and he made friendships there, and uh, it, was, it was great to be able to um, see him recover, come out. Well, it was, um, you know, it was, it was it's kind of funny. Last week uh, on Sunday, uh, we had just kind of finished up our three services. It was after the final service. It was a little bit closer to 2 o'clock. Most everyone had already gone on their way. Pastor Terry was in the back. He was sitting down, and he had already let us know of a little bit of pain in his abdominal section, um, but nothing, nothing, you know, kind of too bad, right? And uh, so he's sitting there, and I get make my, make my way back there, and we're talking, connecting, and just kind of about how our day went and everything. And um, you know, he he said he has said things like this before in a joking manner. He, he but he went ahead and he said, you know, Louis, um, you probably need to get ready. You're probably going to preach next week. <laughs> and uh, you know, I I thought he was joking. Um, and so I remember just, uh, you know, laughing and saying, ah, that's so funny. Uh, you know, you're going to be fine. We're going to pray a little bit harder. You're going to be great. You're going you're to share. And uh, little did he or I know he was actually a prophet telling me my future, um, <laughs> giving me a, a week's advance warning. Uh, but it was Monday morning that, um, you know, we went our way. And it was Monday morning that we, my wife and I were both waking up. And uh, she, she let me know Cheryl, her, his wife, had, had texted us. Letting us know Pastor Terry had been admitted to the hospital. And, um, you know, once that happened, she, she's like, wow, Cheryl, just let us know Pastor's in the hospital. He's, he's in, the doctors want him to stay there all week. And I, immediately what I thought was, oh, no. And in my mind, I thought, how, oh, no, how is, how is Pastor? But what came out was, oh, no, I'm, I'm preaching. <laughs> and uh, it was... It's just, you can imagine, it was one of these weeks where I did not expect this to happen. And, um, you know, we, we walked through the whole week, and, and even Cheryl texted me and said, I know I was there when you and, and uh, you know, Pastor Terry were, were joking about it. This is no joke. <laughs> um, you better get ready, you know. And so uh, it's been quite a week. It's been quite a week around here. But, um, I, you know what? So grateful to say, God has been faithful. And in the midst of this, uh, kind of just walking this out and seeing uh, Pastor Terry get better and dwelling on what we're going to share, I'm excited for what we're about to step into because I think God has something for us to share together. He may have a word for us. And so um, I'm excited to step into it. I would love for us to pray. We've already declared his faithfulness. And so um, 
why don't we ask for his blessing over his word, and then we'll see what he may want to say to us in this time together. All right? So God, we just thank you. We thank you that everything we just declared is nothing but true. When you are with us, you become our source of strength. And everything else pales in comparison to the amazing amount of security we find in your commitment to us. I pray that in these remaining moments, you would have access to the depths of our being, truly. And as we dwell on your word, that you would be able to speak to us personally. Some of us, Lord, we are in need. We are in need of a reminder of what everything hangs on. We are in need of the reminder of the fact that you have made a radical commitment to us. I pray that you would help us embrace, you would help us receive, you would help us step into this word that you may want us ah, to share together. We ask for your blessing over this time, God. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Radical commitment. Pastor Terry has been walking us through the early ministry of Saul and the Apostle Saul, and um, he's been walking us through this ministry with this lens of what a radical commitment looks like. And maybe because out of just more of a trained response, maybe out of a habit, or maybe something of an inclination within me, uh, I immediately, kind of Monday morning, found myself dwelling on the fact that this all hangs on the fact that God has made a commitment. God has made a radical commitment to each and every one of us who embrace his son. And I would like us to sit on this idea and dwell on this theme from a different angle, the message that Saul proclaimed, which is that the minute we accept Jesus for everything he is, we become recipients of the most powerful commitment God could ever offer us, which is that his love will never be separated from us. But the choice, the choice to receive, the choice to accept, to embrace his son, what well, is ours to make? And it is not a choice we make only once. Sometimes we make it every day. Sometimes we make it multiple times a day, multiple times a minute. But the choice is always ours. Whether or not we will receive his radical commitment to us. And this idea, this idea of the fact that God has made a commitment to us that is in some ways immeasurable in its depth, it, it, it reminded me of a story that I, I remember seeing, reading about, being impacted about several years ago. And it's a story of this Olympian. His name is Derek Redman. He was uh, representing the English uh, track and field team. It was in 1992 that he made his way to the semifinal 400 meet uh, heat. Uh, getting a chance to, if he were to be the top four winners of that race, he would get a chance to compete for gold in Barcelona. And it was the second time he had made it to the Olympics. In 1988, he had made it to the Olympics as well. But minutes prior to racing in the final race, he had to disqualify himself because of an Achilles heel uh, tendon that had injured itself. And so he was just that close, minutes away from being able to compete, and he had to end up going into five different surgeries. He worked extraordinarily hard to get himself back into physical condition to be able to compete once again. And him and his father had a unique relationship. His father's name was Jim Redman. 
And on their way to the semifinals in 1992, they, they were discussing how much it had taken for Derek to make his way back to this opportunity again. And his father looks at him and he says, let's make, let's make an agreement here. Let's agree something, Derek. You have worked far too hard to get to this point. So no matter what happens, let's just agree that you will finish this race. If anything bad were to occur, let it not prevent you from crossing the finish line. Derek made this agreement with his father. His father made his way to the stands, not having any, any form of being on the track himself. And Derek made his way to his team. The time came for them to line up on the line. And that backdrop set up what we're about to engage with through an article written by a a journalist for ESPN, his name is Rick Weinberg, and I think he effectively captured what happened that day. The stadium is packed with 65,000 fans bracing themselves for one of sports' greatest and most exciting spectacles. The race begins, and Redmond breaks from the pack and quickly seizes the lead. Keep it up. Keep it up, Jim says to himself, his father. Down the backstretch, only 175 meters away from finishing, Redmond is a shoe-in to make the finals. Suddenly, he hears a pop in his right hamstring. He pulls up lame as if he had been shot. Oh no, Jim says to himself. Derek's face pales, his leg quivering. Redmond begins hopping on one leg, then slows down and falls through the track on his back. And as he lays on the track, clutching his right hamstring, a medical personnel unit runs toward him. At the same time, Jim Redmond, seeing his son in trouble, races down from the top row of the stands, sidestepping people, bumping into others. He has no credential to be on the track, but all he thinks about is getting to his son to help him. I wasn't going to be stopped by anyone he later said. On the track, Redmond realizes his dream of an Olympic medal is gone. Tears run down his face. All I could think was, I'm out of the Olympics again. Then, he remembers the agreement he made with his father prior to the race. The medical personnel unit makes his way to Derek. He refuses their help. And he decides to move on that agreement. And the most stunning moment in Olympic history, and one of them, one of the most memorable moments, occurs. In a moment that will forever live in the minds of millions, Redmond lifts himself to his feet ever so slowly. And he starts hobbling down the track. The other runners have finished the race with Steve Lewis of the U.S. winning the contest, 44.5 seconds. Suddenly, though, everyone realizes that Redmond isn't dropping out of the race by hobbling off to the side of the track. No, he is actually continuing on one leg. He's going to attempt to hobble his way to the finish line. Slowly, the crowd in total disbelief rises and begins to roar. 
The roar gets louder and louder, one painful step at a time, each one a little slower and more painful than the one before, his face twisted with pain and tears. Renman limps onward, and the crowd, many in tears, cheer him on. And suddenly, Jim Redmond finally gets to the bottom of the stands, leaps over a railing, avoids a security guard, and runs out to his son. With two security people chasing after him, he yells back to them, That's my son out there! I'm going to help him! And finally, with Derek refusing to surrender and painfully limping along the track, Jim reaches his son at the final curve, about 120 meters from the finish, and wraps his arm around his waist. I'm here, son, Jim whispers, hugging his boy. We'll finish together. Derek puts his arms on his father's shoulders and sobs. Together, arm in arm, father and son, with 65,000 people cheering, clapping, and crying, they finished the race just as they vowed they would. A couple steps from the finish line, and with the crowd in an absolute frenzy, Jim releases the grip he has on his son so Derek could cross the finish line by himself, and then he throws his arms around Derek again, both crying, along with everyone in the stands, and certainly on TV. later said, I'm the proudest father alive. I'm prouder of him than I would have been if he had won the gold medal. It took a lot of guts for him to do what he just did. And this picture, this moment in Olympic history, well, firstly, it so powerfully communicates and illustrates the love of a father. And I know many of us may not experience this love with our earthly father. I certainly have had the privilege of experiencing such a committed love. And yet we can all agree that this picture illustrates love, committed love at its best. That we're not allow anything to get in its way, anything to stop a commitment. To show up. And as powerful as that is, it really becomes more of an illustration of our Heavenly Father's desire to run after us and to embrace us with such a radical commitment, it is difficult for us to fully comprehend how deep and how wide. It is. And you know, I was thinking about this incident. Derek made a choice, didn't he? And when his father jumped over the railing and ran after him on the track, he had a choice to make. Was he going to continue to try to finish the race by himself? Or was he going to receive? His father's embrace. And that decision, that tension point, is exactly the same one. It's not all that different from the situation we may find ourselves in in regards to God's commitment to us. 
Will we accept it? Will we embrace him? Will we allow his embrace to strengthen us in this race we're in? Or not? Choice is ours to make. And, and, and this idea, this idea is what Saul becomes one of the most powerful communicators of. He becomes a proclaimer of this message of God's commitment to us through his son. And we may remember in Acts 9, there was an incident in which illustrated, if we open up our handouts, we'll step into this together. But Pastor Terry has been walking us through this. And some of us may remember that Saul was on his way to Damascus vehemently opposed to what God was doing through Jesus and his people, his followers. And on that road, God decides to confront Saul, reveals himself. Saul becomes blind, becomes completely dependent, knows he has met God. And he goes on to Damascus, but not for the reason he had set himself on any longer. He goes there to wait and while he is waiting, while he is praying, God uh, speaks to a messenger of his, a servant of his named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, you have heard of Saul. I want you to go to Saul and I want you to deliver a message for me. I want you to be the carrier of my words for him. And Ananias understandably pushes back. He says, now, God, are you sure about this? I mean, Saul's the one who has been, you know, he has papers right now to take us back to jail. Wouldn't that be just falling into his trap a little bit? Um, are you sure? You want me to go to the persecutor of your people? But God had a plan. God had a plan. And we read in verse 9 that God said to him, go. Yes, I am positive. Go. For Saul, listen, things have changed. He is now my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Because my message, it is so radical in its effect in this culture. It will confuse. It will cause controversy. And he will suffer to be able to proclaim my good news. And it proved itself to be true. Each time Saul, Paul would end up, Saul who became Paul would end up speaking about Jesus, controversy would ensue. People would take his words, misrepresent them. They would twist them through their own filters and their own paradigms, and they would inject into them a level of cynicism. He did not mean or intend. And that would end up causing a stir anywhere he went. And he did suffer. And in fact, this led to a point where Paul was so misunderstood and misrepresented in certain times that before he made his way to a group of believers in Rome, he decided he would write a comprehensive document explaining what this message truly was and this need to clarify what everyone else had been misrepresenting is what produced the book of Romans. And in the middle of Romans, in the eighth chapter, some would say the apex of this letter, Paul drops into a poetic, song-like declaration of a single aspect of this message, which is God's commitment 
to us in Jesus. And I'd like us to just walk through it. Allow ourselves to be reminded or impressed by what God is offering in his son. It says, after everything you have heard, after the first seven chapters, after everything that is good and right and true about Jesus, if we embrace him, some things happen. And we read in verse 31 of the eighth chapter, he says, what shall we say then about such wonderful things as these? Um, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? A rhetorical question leading to an obvious answer. No one. It's since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? If he gave us his own son, what would he withhold? Nothing. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. He, he is the one who has declared us right in his eyes the minute we receive his son. It, it is powerful. He says, listen, I am convinced. He goes into now the most uh, single most important point on which everything else turns. This is the good news. This is the message that turned the Roman Empire upside down. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus, King Jesus, died for us and was raised to life for us. Death could not hold him. He is sitting right now in the place of honor at God's right hand, an image of the fact that that is the most preeminent place in the universe. And he is sitting in the most powerful seat anywhere. And what is he doing? What is he doing while he's sitting there? What is he using this power for? Pleading for us. Such is the depth. God's commitment. That is what he is using every ounce of his resource for. And on this, everything turns. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute? If we have nothing, does that mean his love has abandoned us? What if we're in danger or are threatened with death? Because, guys, you could almost hear him saying, I've experienced every single one of these things. He says, I, I understand what the psalmist said when he says, For your sake, God, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Don't you understand, Roman believers, that you have heard of people who have loved Jesus and yet they have been persecuted. They have been martyred. Because they refuse to relent the fact that they know Jesus is alive. Does that mean that God no longer loves us? That we've somehow been separated from his love? Let me tell you something. He says in verse 37, no, no. What an amazing way to view life and the world around us. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced 
And here becomes one of the most memorable passages in the entire book of Romans that he says, I am convinced. He declares a conviction. He is not just speaking out of theory or knowledge. He is speaking out of the knowledge of experience and walking it out. Can we sense the depth from which he drew his strength? From how he was able to endure shipwreck and hunger, abandonment and loneliness, pain, both physical and emotional. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Just so we fully understand, I mean the word nothing. You almost hear him saying, neither death nor life, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. No, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Just so we're clear, just so we're exhaustive in our list of declaring what is not able to separate us from God's commitment to us. Look, look indeed, nothing in all creation, if I happen to miss something, Let's just really clarify this. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this proved itself to be true in Paul's life when he was in the middle of the ocean shipwrecked. This proved itself to be true in Paul's life when he was in the middle of a dungeon locked up. This proved itself to be true in Paul's life when he was abandoned by his friends and he alone was there sitting as a testimony to the kings. This proved to be it's true in Paul's life. And it certainly could be proven to be true in our life. The minute we accept, we embrace Jesus for everything that he is, we become recipients of a radical commitment God longs to give us. And that has the power to change everything, shift everything. On that access point, everything turns. Everything turns. And as we sit with this, I'd like us to consider just a couple thoughts, a couple things that, practically speaking, end up happening when we embrace him, when we accept God's committed love. And I know, I understand, some of us, we've been walking with him for some time now. Some of us, however, on the other hand, may be sitting here, and we're more sitting here in a guarded stance, wondering what this is all about, figuring out if we even want to be a part of what God is doing through Jesus. I understand that. And so it is good for us either to be reminded or maybe to be offered an invitation to embrace what exactly God is seeking to commit because I like to put this under the heading of when we accept God's committed love in Christ, it, it, it radically redefines our sense of security and self-worth. It, it redefines our sense of security and self-worth. You know why? Because life happens. I mean, hamstrings get pulled. Our body fails us. Appendicitis happens. We get thrust into positions maybe we aren't planning to be in. We may not feel prepared to be in. 
Life happens. Things don't always go as we have planned them to go. Projects may not turn out the way we intended them to turn out. People may let us down. Bad decisions may impinge themselves on us. We may make bad decisions we later regret. Life happens. And in those moments when life happens and the ground on which we've been standing starts to shift and shake and tremor, it is either an invitation or a great reminder that our source of security is nothing, nothing, nothing if it is not the radical commitment God has made to us. It is but shifting sand. If it is not the radical commitment God has made to us. And what a tremendous amount of safety we end up receiving. We know he is committed to us no matter what comes our way. See, it becomes strong in our lives, and it also redefines our sense of self-worth because the reality is I know in my own life there have been things in my own past that I am just, just too embarrassed of. Or maybe we have internal struggles that speak shame over us because they exist within us and we would rather deny that they are there but they are there and they speak in our minds and they start to whisper a voice to say not you i mean everyone else yes you gotta kind of be good in order for god to commit himself to you but the minute we accept his son what happens is that the one who was faithful covers us and what happens is when we get to start to see ourselves through the lens of one who is forgiven, as one who is loved, as one who will not be abandoned, things start to change. We no longer see ourselves through our weakness. We see ourselves through his strength. And it is amazing what it does to our internal disposition. See, when we accept his radical commitment to us in Christ, we not only find security, we not only find an amazing sense of self-worth, but we also end up finding room, safety, to be able to address and deal with our weaknesses. We, we end up being able to be honest about things. We end up being able to... See, because this is important. None of us, none of us will ever take our masks and our points of denial off unless we understand that we are safe. And it is only in a safe relationship where revealing ourselves will not threaten the nature of the relationship that we will be able to acknowledge there, is, there are areas that need to be addressed. Derek refused the help of medical personnel. Didn't know them. To, that, to him, that meant disqualification, even though he already lost a race. However, when his father comes running behind him and his father's voice is what he hears and his father's embrace is what he feels, he feels nothing but safety to be able to throw himself on his shoulders and sob with the very pain he's been running with since the moment his muscle pulled and ripped. How many of us are resisting father's embrace and we're running with nothing but pain inside of us? How many of us are dealing with some real issues right now that we don't feel comfortable addressing. I'm, I wonder how many of us simply need to be reminded of the fact that God is committed to us. And in that commitment, we are able to be honest. This area right here needs your tender healing touch. This area right here, God, we need to address it. I know it's a problem. I need to adjust some things in my life. Will you help me? 
because I'm feeling like I'm limping along. What are all those areas? God may want to do something. God may want to do something. Lastly, see, God's radical commitment, it, it, it's profound because it helps us remain faithful in the midst of difficult challenges. This is our source of strength. This is where we are able to draw from. And, and this is the paradigm that Paul had. He, he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, listen, I'm not pretending to be anything I'm not. I mean, I'm like a, a, a jar of clay. He, he, this is what he said to them. We are all jars of clay. We're so fragile. But, but we have treasure inside of us. And this treasure inside of us changes everything. Because he says, listen, we are pressed. We are pressed on every side by troubles. But we aren't, we, we aren't crushed. It's a miracle. We are not crushed. Life doesn't crush us. Because of who is inside of us. We are perplexed. Yeah, we don't understand everything. But we, we're not driven to despair. Somehow hope holds us. We are hunted down. And can you hear the depth of God's radical commitment in his life. Listen, we are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. This is a very different perspective. When life gets difficult, when, when we are disappointed, you know, I think we easily drop into, or maybe we, maybe I could just be honest and say, I have dropped into moments in which we feel like, hmm, you know what, God, if you are God, can't you solve this? Can't you do something about this? I was having a conversation with somebody this week, being honest about stuff. We came to this realization that the expectation when we signed up with God is that life would become easier. And he's God. So if things are hard, I mean, he literally has a power, right? Doesn't he to just solve it? And the truth is he can. Many times he doesn't. And when he doesn't, we start to feel a little bit of an attitude change that starts to blame him, boy. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And, and this is what is amazing about Paul. He never blamed God for the difficulty of life. He understood what Jesus said when he said, in this life, in this life, you will have tribulation. However, where is the, the victory comes in the fact that I have overcome this world. And so when you give yourself over to me and you allow my commitment to define you, you too will not be crushed when life presses on you. You too will not be driven to despair when you don't understand everything and acknowledge you're limited. You too will not be abandoned when you feel like everything is against you. And you will start to see something pretty amazing happen in your life. You will remain faithful and steadfast. You will be held together by my commitment. I wonder what are the areas in our lives where we, this is, this is really it. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. There are some things God is asking us to remain in because he longs to form his character in us. And it is only by his strength that we can do it. There are some relationships God is asking us to remain in. There are some points of responsibility. There are some areas in which it is only by accepting his commitment in our lives that we can possibly endure. 
And we so quickly forget that. Now, how can his commitment sustain us? See, this is, this is the wonderful God we serve. This is the beautiful God we get to speak of, sing of, remind ourselves of. May he do it. May he do it in our lives. May it not just be words written thousands of years ago. May they be written on our soul. May they carry themselves out in our daily life. And may we too be able to step in with Paul and say, I have been convinced nothing will separate us from his love. That is his radical commitment to us. In a moment, we're going to be receiving our time of giving. The band's going to come up. We're going to share in a closing song. And it, it more speaks to a response. A response that God would long for us to have. And it says in the fourth stanza, I feel your wind is moving. God, you, you are kind of calling me to do something, but I'm not sure where it's going. I don't have all the answers, but you know what? This thing I determined, I'll let it carry me away because I'm not going to stay in this place. Not apart from you. I will let you do what you long to do because I know you're committed. You won't abandon. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that, um, that you sent us your son, that you have loved us beyond uh, our recognition so many times. Thank you that you are the one who chases after us on the track. You're the one who comes up next to us. You're the one who longs for us to receive your love and your commitment. I pray that you would sustain us, strengthen us, remind us, help us engage with you, help us move on the things you may be asking us to move on. We pray for your blessing, God, over our time of giving. We ask that you would reinforce what it is you may be saying. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.